Good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. And um, this morning we are in a series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is in the New Testament. And it's unique because it, this book of Hebrews reads more like a sermon and less a, like one of Paul's letters. And so although the author of Hebrews is kind of unknown, it's a mystery. We don't really know who wrote uh, the letter or the book of Hebrews or really this sermon of Hebrews. This, this book of the Bible has been self-evident. Uh, it is testified of its own e- efficacy, uh, it being a part of the scriptures and pointing us to the good news about Jesus. And so although the author never reveals himself, that what the writer is concerned about in the book of Hebrews is not falling away uh, due to temptation and trial. Is, is my microphone on? It is? Okay, good. I'm just making sure. Um, there we go. But anyways, like a good sermon, um, I want to say State Farm is there, but like, <laughs> it's not that. Um, like a good sermon, there's a constant return in every section of this book to one overarching theme. And this theme is that Jesus is greater, he's more powerful, and frankly, he's better than anyone or anything else. It's the subtitle of this series, it's up on the screen over there, Jesus really is better. And that's what, why we have been preaching week after week. We've seen the, through, through the past few weeks, we've seen the writer of Hebrews flow through this sermonic pattern again and again, encouraging us to see Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Even Jesus is better than the the rest of the promised land. And he is the fulfillment of that promise of the rest of the promised land. But also following up in each of those passages of seeing that Jesus is better, like a good sermon, uh, again, the writer of Hebrews is going to remind us of the bad news of, uh, of things as well. He's going to give us these really harsh and sober reminders of what's at stake if we don't put our trust in Jesus. If we choose to harden our hearts in sin, and I hate to break it for you, but next week Ryan's got another doozy of a passage for us and that we're going to walk through next week, so look out. But in today's passage, the writer of Hebrews is concerned with expanding this idea that he started back in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, he established the idea of Jesus as our high priest, but today we're going to dig into why that's such a big deal and why Jesus had to become our great high priest, why that's really good news for us, and what we're called to do and respond to in light of that news. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. If you grab one of those black um, uh, hardback Bibles at the back of the room back there, we're going to be on page 943. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that Bible our gift to you this morning, and uh, maybe consider reading through uh, the New Testament, maybe reading it uh, even better alongside of someone else. Maybe you make a friend here this morning and you read the Bible together. Um, But let me read these verses out loud for us. It'll be in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. It'll also be up on the screen for us. God's very word to us this morning speaks to us like this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among the men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does those for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray again for God's help. Jesus, as we walk through this passage about you, about you being our great high priest, how you have passed through the heavens and you invite us to hold fast our confession. You invite us to to come to you, to draw near to the very throne of grace that you set on now, um, seated in the heavenlies. God, I pray that this morning uh, we would fix our eyes on you, Jesus, that for those of us who don't know the good news of why you had to become our great high priest and what you went through and endured to to become that, God, I pray that, that this passage would teach us this morning that by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, that you would um, show us the good news of this passage, all of us here in this room, but then also, too, that you would bring uh, dead hearts to life this morning, stir deep faith in us who so desperately need it. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So, uh, you may not have picked up on this as you've been uh, listening alongside of us as we've been walking through Hebrews for the past number of weeks, but this is the second time in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews has focused on this idea of help. And I know that because it was the last time I preached. Uh, The last time I preached, uh, one of the big things was that the writer wanted to show us that Jesus was our high priest and that we could come to him for help. And, and I wonder, um, where do you normally go for in your times of need? Uh, when things really go off the rails, when things really feel out of control, uh, maybe it's in a, a moment of temptation, maybe it's in a moment of trial, uh, but where do you look for help? Uh, maybe you're like me and you might stress snack. Anybody, you got some stress snackers in the room, right? Maybe uh, you're like me, you find your kids' veggie straws and you just like devour uh, those things in your moments of anxiety and weakness. Uh, I unfortunately have indulged in those things. Uh, Maybe you start biting your nails. And I know some of y'all are like, ooh, that's so gross. But some of y'all do it, especially when you get stressed out. Maybe you call someone. Maybe you call your dad. Who are you gonna call? I don't know, but maybe you're gonna call somebody Maybe you go straight to Google and you're just, I got to figure this thing out. There's got to be a Reddit forum to help me figure this thing out. Maybe more seriously though, you rely on your own intellect or your own strength. Or maybe you unnecessarily um, kind of rely on another person in a codependent type way. Or maybe you uh, have your hope just wrapped up in a certain system that's going to bring you help. We're all going to have different knee-jerk reactions of where we tend to go for help, but the right of Hebrews wants to convince us 
that whenever we need help, we are to boldly go to Jesus. And this passage tells us that we are to go with him with confidence. This passage, and the writer of Hebrews, I think the main point of this passage is this, that because Jesus has become our great high priest, we should cling to our confession and come to him for help. You may have noticed at the beginning of this passage that I read, that right out the gate, there's two clear commands, that we would hold fast our confession and draw near to the throne of grace, all because of this one thing that Jesus has now been pronounced, now that he's passed through the heavens, he is our great high priest. But before we deal with those commands of the things that we're told to do, I think what's best for us is to understand why it's a big deal that Jesus has become our high priest and why that really is good news for us. So let's be honest. For starters, a lot of us are disconnected from the idea of thinking that we need a priest. As Westerners living in the year of our Lord 2024, uh, the idea of, of priests offering sacrifices on our behalf seems really foreign. Honestly, in our, in our modern lives, are so removed from like, you know, significant rituals, uh, people that are, uh, the idea of like a holy man, or even just the spilling of blood. I mean, we're so removed from that even in our own food, are we not, right? We go to the supermarket, we pick up a pack of chicken, and the chicken's already been killed for us. We don't need to go to a slaughterhouse. We don't need to get our hands dirty, other than washing our nasty chicken hands off in the sink, right? See, this idea of a priest and, and the role that they played in the history of God's covenant people is really, really important. For the original hearers of this letter of Hebrews, they would have had some idea. They would have remembered what it was like to go back to the temple to, to viscerally smell the blood that was being sacrificed on their behalf because of their sin. See, under the old Levitical Old Testament system, these priests represented the people under God. We just really don't have a good analogy of what that's compared to in our modern society. And so the only thing I could think of this morning uh, was the, if you've ever needed a lawyer to represent you in court, right? And you know how this goes. In court, you have charges against you that need to be resolved so you don't go to jail or something bad doesn't like, happen to you. So you don't talk, they talk for you. You don't try to defend yourself you let the lawyers speak on your behalf, and that's much like what these priests would have been like before God. And I know that analogy breaks down really quickly, but thankfully the author of Hebrews tells us about what this role of high priest were in the old Jewish sacrificial system. Look with me at verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 again. Hebrews 5.1 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So here, we're given the basic template of the role of priests. So if we're going to ask, like, who, what, when, where, why, like, why these people, we ask the first question of, who are these priests? And we're told uh, at the end of verse 4 that it was Aaron. That the, everything started with this guy named Aaron and, and the old Levitical priestly system. These people were uh, in the line of Aaron, and they were chosen and appointed by God. They were set apart from other people. Uh, that, that word set apart means holy, dedicated as holy, and, and separated, different from, and they were anointed in this role of being a priest among God's people that meant to represent God and be a mediator between God and man. And so that kind of answers the second question of well, what did they do and how did they do that? They represented and acted as a mediator between God and man by offering 
gifts and sacrifices. And so you can literally think about like an Old Testament slaughterhouse where they were killing animals, catching their blood, burning fat on an altar. And I know some of y'all are like, that's gross, right? You're immediately thinking like, ooh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But specifically, this role of the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year and to offer a sacrifice first for himself to cleanse himself because he was a sinner too, and then offer a sacrifice on behalf of God's people to cleanse them from their sin. But again, that, that needed to happen again and again and again. So why again were these priests necessary? Because sin continued to happen again and again and again. Sin is the problem, and this is the system that God preordained to be the means to deal with it. I know it might seem distant for us and gross to some of us, but this was the means by which God was prefiguring what was to come after this. Verses 2 through 3 of chapter 5 tell us that the high priests before Jesus were beset with weakness, and they were sinners themselves, which gave them a gentleness and a patience to deal with other sinners. See, this shows us the significance of how important it is that Jesus became our high priest, because Jesus not only stepped into this high priestly role, through taking it on, he shows us that this role, it was pointing to something beyond itself. That it, was, it was pointing to a future reality that was going to come, the, the coming of a great high priest to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. So the second question, why is it a big deal that Jesus became our high priest? Why didn't he just do away with the system completely? Why did he have to become our great high priest? And let's look more closely about why Jesus became our great high priest in, in uh, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 5. I'll read these again for us. Verse 5 says, so that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from, from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now you might be thinking to yourself, who's this Melchizedek guy? Uh, he's actually a pretty uh, a mysterious figure in the Old Testament that shows up only really in uh, two places in the Old Testament. One in particular, like a bodily form, and then all, all kinds of quotes about him in the Old Testament. Just hold your horses with Melchizedek. We will talk about him a lot more in the upcoming chapters. But what you need to know is that Melchizedek in Genesis appears before Abraham, and what he comes out with is bread and wine. And where have you heard that before? Bread and wine. And what does Abram do before Melchizedek? He tithes to Melchizedek. He actually gives a tithe to him, and Melchizedek blesses Abram. Where have we heard that one before in the church? Again, Melchizedek prefigures, I believe, the person and work of Jesus in the Old Testament, but it also prefigures the priesthood of Aaron, because it became much more uh, before the priesthood of Aaron would ever be established. And so with 
the writer of Hebrews establishing Jesus as in the line of Melchizedek, he's saying that he belongs to a priesthood that's not just through the, the line of Aaron because Jesus was not through the line of Aaron. He could not be the high priest through the, uh, the line of Aaron. He was through a different line. And so Jesus himself is in the line of Melchizedek. And there's two things that are really significant about that. One is that Melchizedek was not just a priest, but he was called uh, the king of righteousness. Is what his name actually means. And he's the, the priest of Salem, the place of all peace and shalom. So he is the king priest that comes before all other priests in the scriptures. Jesus being established in the line of Melchizedek means that Jesus belongs to a priestly line that has been uh, prefigures the line of Aaron, prefigures the, all of the Old Testament Levitical system, but it shows that Jesus is going to reign in this role forever. His being in the line of Melchizedek means that his priestly role and his kingly role will never end because Melchizedek never dies. Melchizedek never has a, a starting and an ending point in the, New Test, I mean, the Old Testament scriptures, and Jesus is within that line as well. See, I think it's incredible how this section of Scripture starts out that Jesus, the Son of God, you know, established in this role according to the plan of God for all time, that he's going to come and he's going to sacrifice, he's going to become the great high priest. He does not exalt himself to be made that high priest. Jesus himself shows us the humility of God and that he was appointed now, think like a good Trinitarian with me here for a second, that the, God the Father sovereignly appointed the Son, and the Son obediently accepted the role. And what that means is that Jesus, in his humanity, he learned to wait. Jesus learned to be patient. He had to learn what it meant to be without, to be hungry, to need to sleep. And in his humanity, he modeled for us what it looks to fight against instant gratification. In, the, in our culture where everything is microwavable, where everything's right at your fingertips all the time, Jesus shows us by example what it means to wait. See, Jesus wasn't appointed by God in the way that the high priest was in the law. He was appointed in that same process where he was sovereignly appointed to this role. It was not by a democratic process or a vote of the people, but by God. We see that Jesus learned obedience. It was made perfect. And if you're like me, at first read, you know, I'm scratching my public school brain, you know, I'm like, eh, that seems problematic, you know? Like, how can God be made perfect? I thought he was already perfect. You know, how can God learn obedience? I thought he was the king of the universe. And it, Jesus is the son of God. What do these things actually mean? And uh, let me explain it kind of like this. Imagine you meet someone, and through conversation, uh, you find out that they're a race car driver. And you're like, whoa, you don't just meet one of those every, once, every, every day. And they say, uh, you, you say, hey, tell me about being a race car driver. That's got to be really exciting. They're like, yeah, it's great. I'm a race car driver. Here's all about the cars, about the races. Here's our racing strategy, all that. And then you press them further and you say, well, when was the last time you won a race? And they're like, ah, you know what? I've actually never won a race. And you're like, oh, that's too bad. You know, you've never won a race. You press them further, it's like, well, when was the last race you were in? And they say, well, uh, I've actually never been in a race. And then you press them even further, and you find out they've never even sat in a race car. They've never actually pressed the pedals. They've never actually had their hands on the wheel of the race car. How could they have the audacity to call themselves a race car driver, right? And some of y'all are already thinking, you're like, they're in VR. You know, like, it's, it's all digital. You know, it's a PS5 with a controller, you know. It's not that. 
See, Jesus, for becoming human and becoming our great high priest, taking on humanity isn't theoretical. See, he didn't come and read the manual for what it's like to be human. Jesus became a man. He took on to his divinity, his, uh, his humanity. He had to learn how to read. He memorized scripture himself. He really died on a cross for our sins. And in that, he became our great high priest. I know it's challenging to think about this, but uh, about Jesus, but there are things about Jesus that have not always been true in his humanity. At one point, he did not have a body. Think about that. A deep thought. At one point, Jesus did not have a body. Before the incarnation, Jesus was not eternally submissive to God the Father because he was not in his divinity. He was co-equal, co-eternal, like we confess together as a church. In his humanity, like the scriptures said, he learned obedience because he had never had to obey before. Think about your children, right? Jesus, even without sin, had to learn obedience as a child to obey his parents. Again, we confess without sin. And Jesus was made perfect because before that, he could not be our great high priest. He had to become human in order to go ahead of us and passing through the heavens and going not into a temple in a physical place, but going into the actual throne room of God. See, Jesus, in the act of sacrificing himself for our sins, did not go into the temple in Jerusalem like the high priest. He did not wear the ceremonial clothes of the high priest. He didn't bring a bull or a goat or a lamb to atone for the sins of the people. He entered into the very presence and throne room of God. Jesus, being tempted yet without sin, wore his own spotless righteousness into that throne room. And Jesus, his own blood, was poured out on the cross as the atoning sacrifice that could cleanse all of his people from all of their sin. And verse 9 tells us that he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This tells us why Jesus became our great high priest is good news for us. Jesus becomes our source of eternal salvation. If we obey him like verse 9 says, another New Testament letter tells us in the book of James that faith without works is dead. That what this passage says, all who obey him actually matters. That our walking in faith with Jesus matters. If we are saved by faith alone, faith is never to be found alone. It's always accompanied by obedience that we're doing something about it. And also, this salvation that Jesus accomplished isn't a temporary one like the old sacrificial system. See, the high priest had to enter the temple year after year after year. Bull after goat after dove, blood spilled on the ground into bowls again and again and again and again. But what Jesus has accomplished here, being in the line of Melchizedek, this lasts forever. He has become our eternal source of salvation. Jesus does not need to get back up on the cross and sacrifice himself again and again every year. What he has done is once and for all, and this is really good news. Like at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews said, Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, doesn't say Jesus went back to being a carpenter. 
No, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The work of salvation is finished. Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of God. Do you know what that means, follower of Jesus, here in the room? It means that right now, through Jesus, you have direct access to God. You have the attention of the king of the universe. Later in chapter 7, the writer is going to say this about Jesus, that he always lives to make intercession for us. This is Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, after we understand the greatness of this good news of why, why Jesus needed to become our high priest, what that actually did for us, now we can understand a bit more about why it's good news that Jesus is our high priest and what we're called to do in response to that. Let's look back at verses 14 through 16 together. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Here's the command. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect who's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So obviously, these verses command to us to do two things. Hold fast to our confession and draw near. This confession, like Romans puts it, that anyone who says with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord will be saved. That confession, that simple gospel confession, we hold that Jesus is Lord. And we also draw near to the throne of grace. And who sits upon that throne of grace? It's Jesus himself. We draw near to him. I just love how tender the rite of Hebrews here. Remember that this, these verses are fresh off the heels of last week's sermon, right? And last week's sermon, remember, you're going to die <laughs> in the middle of the desert. Like, don't die in the middle of the desert by uh, having a heart that hardens into sin. Like, don't uh, neglect the, this promise of making it into the land of rest. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews is fresh off of that warning. But he very tenderly tells us, and he's quick to tell us, that we should trust this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So the writer tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with every single one of us because he actually gets us. He has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. See, right now in this room, um, you could probably find another person, or two, maybe even three, in this room that have had similar temptation and trial as you. Maybe even right now. Maybe you're going through a hard season of life. Maybe you have family members that are sick or have passed away. Maybe you are struggling with a sin or a temptation that, that is just tearing you to pieces right now. You could find someone that has a similar uh, position in life or a similar way to kind of commiserate with you and say, well, I know what you're going through, kind of. But the only one who can really say, I know what you're going through and actually mean it to the nth degree is Jesus himself. Let me explain why. See, Jesus never gave into temptation, right? He's tempted yet without sin. 
Have you guys, uh, you remember maybe in giving into a temptation, giving into sin, there's like this reprieve for a moment and everything kind of lets up for a second. There is this release. Yes, there is the, the, the problem that you have engaged in sin and sin before a holy God, but the temptation gives itself up for a little bit. Kind of the pressure is off. Now, if Jesus never gave into sin, what was also true about Jesus? Did the pressure ever let up? No. It never let up. It grew and grew and grew and grew. See, Jesus like, tempted, was tempted in every single way as we are. If you have a specific temptation, you're like, yeah, no one knows what it's like to be me. No one knows what it's like to struggle with this thing that I struggle with. Jesus does. And this passage of Scripture tells us that, that I've been there. I understand. I know what you're going through. And those words can come out of Jesus' very mouth. See, Jesus experienced temptation to a degree that none of us will ever know. And this is the good news in this command, that we are to hold fast our confession. And the good news is that it's not about trusting our ability to hold on to Jesus like trying to hold on to a, a giant bag of helium balloons, just trying to race out everywhere else. You know, like you're, if you're trying to hold on to like a bunch of cats and just going everywhere. It's not like our faith in Jesus is that way. It's trying to get away from us. Our faith in Jesus is steadfast and sure. He is the sure and steady anchor. He is the, the cornerstone, the bedrock of our salvation. He, and he is immovable. And it's not our ability to hold on to him it's our trust in his immovability that God itself will never change and that trusting Jesus is, isn't something that we are trusting our own ability to do, but rather his promises towards us. See, this means that trusting Jesus is never just a one and done decision. See, once you start down the road of faith, you must continue on it. And we do that by not just holding fast to our confession of Jesus as Lord, but to drawing near to him continually, again and again. Look with me again at verse 16. It says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This word confidence, maybe some of you kind of balk at that word, like confidence, like really? Like, do you know how small my faith is? Do you know how bad I am? Do you know how much I sinned this past week? How am I supposed to go to the throne with confidence? See, our confidence is not rooted in us to, preach, uh, to approach the throne of God. Remember that even the high priest, when he prepared to go to the Holy of Holies, had the great fear of possible death as he approached the mercy seat. See, we have confidence to draw near the throne because of who Jesus has shown himself to be and who the scriptures testify him to be. He, through Jesus's experience of taking on humanity and becoming our great high priest, it means he is able to sympathize with us. So if, if you're here today and you've been living with the idea that God is just some um, angry guy in the sky, he's like the kid that has the magnifying glass and you're the ant on the ground and he just wants to burn you to a little crisp, nothing could be further than the, from the truth. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through, and he knows your pain, your fears, your doubts, your struggles, because he in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This also shows that God is merciful with us. Sometimes when we endure something, as humans, uh, we tend to think, you know, well, if I got through it, 
and I'm okay on this side of it, well, they can get through it as well. And we use that as justification to judge others, judge them in their circumstances to say, well, why don't they just hush up, like stop complaining, pull, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Not so with Jesus. Jesus never comes to us with condemnation. He never tries to make us change with shame. See, Jesus knows that when we come to him with confidence, that he's not going to shame us in our weakness. He's going to meet us and help us in it. See, remember again these things that, that you might be tempted to return to for help. Whether it's your intellect, your, your, your hard work, maybe other people or other things you try to treat like little saviors to, to save you, all these things are at best temporary quick fixes. And instead of going to those things and trusting in those things and having those knee jerks to those things, we should boldly come to Jesus and trust that he is what we really need. So I don't know what you might be struggling to believe this morning, uh, whether it's, it's just simple truth that Jesus really is God or that his death could wash you clean from all sin, or maybe that he really does want to actually help you, that God really is good. Whatever, whatever it is, I want to encourage you. Jesus knows. Jesus gets it. He understands. And he wants you to know that you can come to him for help. Other people may judge you. Other people may reject you. You might even judge and reject yourself. You can go to Jesus. You can trust the good news of Jesus, you can trust that he's going to welcome you in. In the same way Jesus didn't need to enter a physical temple to make sacrifices for our sin, we now can come to Jesus whenever and wherever we are. This is the invitation for all of us this morning that we would believe that Jesus has become the eternal source of our salvation to all who would obey him. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, um, with the good news of this passage, God, I, I pray. Um, it's just so self-evident, the good news of a passage like this and the way that you have shown yourself to be merciful and kind. You've shown yourself to be the God of all comfort. You've shown us to, to be the great high priest that goes before us and calls us to yourself. God, I pray that you would give us hearts to believe. God, I pray uh, that for those who are struggling to believe, God, that are struggling with doubt or they're struggling in the midst of trial to believe that you are good. God, that they would boldly approach your throne. They would come into the place where you dwell with whatever they have. God, whether it is doubt, whether it's big questions, God, you can handle it. God, I pray that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin God, that we would want to hide in the places of our shame and our guilt and our regret. God, I pray that we would boldly approach your throne, knowing that you are the one who has become our high priest. You um, have provided a salvation that will be eternal. God, the hope of heaven is real for us. And God, we can experience the first fruits of that as we boldly approach your throne and come to you in the times of our great help and need. Jesus, I pray um, that we would really believe that. God, that it would change everything about us. It would change these communities, um, the, this community of this church. God, it would change the relationships that exist in this room. And God, that you would make us into a people um, that you desire for yourself, a kingdom of priests, um, showing others um, 
and mediating and bringing others into this family of God that you are establishing for yourself. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.